the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thanks for tuning in to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with your hosts, Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics and the Union of Pataphysicists. Today, Taylor and I are happy to bring two guests. We're going to do a little bit of an extemporaneous conversation today. No, no readings, no plans. We're just going to let it ride. So I will let both of our guests introduce themselves. Whoever wants to get started, go right ahead. Is it, Will, you can go first. <laughs> <laughs> Will, uh, be, but because on uh, Machine Gun Conscious, a lot of people go by their screen names. I'm Emo Foucault on Twitter. I am a co-host over at Acid Horizon, good friends of Machine Gun Conscious Happy Hour. We're sort of, you know, holding down the trenches, you know, we're going over the top with one another sort of thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, it's always fun to, to chat with pals. So, yeah. I'm Jack. I don't do this thing too often, but I'm Snowdrift Moon, all one word on Twitter. And uh, I make music and sometimes read. And I just doxed Will, apparently. So we'll have to cut all that out. <laughs> you want to tell the listeners about your, your YouTube page, your music? Oh, where they can yeah. Find that? If you follow me on Twitter, that'll, that'll take you where you need to go. I'm okay. kind of in a, okay. yeah, I'm kind of in a weird space right now where like my current project is kind of coming to a close. So, but new stuff in the future. So awesome. just follow awesome. me on Twitter. That works. We can share whatever uh, you want to share as far as links go in the, in the show notes on Sounds both good. accounts. We started out talking about Nietzsche a little bit, and uh, I'll just throw this out as sort of a provocation. I said this on a recent recording we were doing on symbolic exchange and death, mm. and the second chapter, which focuses on the simulacra. So I had this random kind of aphorism that the name of God is the first simulation. So yeah. I don't know if that has any resonance with anyone or anybody would like to jump off of that, but that might be something fun to start out with especially since we're talking about existentialism as well, and Nietzsche in particular. You know some of my thoughts about this, so I'll let uh, Will or, or Jack or both um, respond. I, I'd rather follow somebody. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, no. One of the little passages in Symbolic Exchange of Death, this is just a refresh from the episode, because we, we discussed this, where he's, he's, talking about, um, he's talking about these philosophers of life and you know, the recent discovery at the time of DNA and mm. one of the philosophers, a guy is still alive and he's like 9,900. His name is Edgar Marin, who said DNA equals Adonai, which is like one of the words for the Lord. Since you're not supposed to say Yahweh, it's kind of forbidden in um, sort of ancient Hebrew. You're, you're supposed to have all these different other names to kind of, and Adonai is one of them. That doesn't give you much to work with, I guess. But that that was partly where we got into this notion that, yeah, the, the name of God is this 
is the first thing that's both simulated and perhaps dissimulated, mm. right? You can think well, about this too in the context of uh, Lacan in particular, and I think relative to you know the symbolic order or like the the sort of alienation of being a speaking being all, that already you know what I mean is getting adopted into the symbolic order sort of goes to that, but I don't know what the Deleuze Guattarian response to that kind of would be. Cause I feel like there's, that's definitely not what they're not going to vibe with that at all, but I don't know that kind of makes sense for me a little bit and I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> this idea that DNA is divine already sort of uh, starts to see how one could sort of refer this back to like the natural desire to like, seek, know, and love God, whatever that might mean, right? Mm -hmm. In this sort of almost univocal way, right? (laughs) Like DNA is the one thing that constitutes sort of an understanding to like get this idea that humans participate in the real with sort of um, one one identifiable regime of legibility, I guess would be what DNA constitutes. So yeah, I think I think that's fascinating. I, I don't know where I could go with it. You know, <laughs> yeah. my theology is already pretty weak. <laughs> well, Jack, you, you may have had something you wanted to say. Well, I was going to ask, and this might be a loaded question, but what, what do we mean when we say simulation? <laughs> mm, yeah. I mean, it goes to language and it goes to being a speaking being and it goes to being sort of having this weird subject, uh, you know, the kind of split subject stuff again, being an object and a subject of language itself, right? It's kind of this self-referential bootstrapping of, of culture or of the socius as an example. Like you, one, you, like you sort of have to have this name of God. And I'm thinking particularly early on, like early in an evolutionary perspective in terms of culture or whatever. What's the sort of inciting incident? What, what must one construct in order to create the social, what's the primary step in that, in that process? I mean, I may be talking out of my, I'm kind of talking out of my ass a little bit, but it feels, it feels right. And it feels profound, but who knows? I mean, I, <laughs> I could be full of shit as well. I mean, and in the, the, the work, Bojard is trying to elaborate how these different stages lead up to the dominance and predominance of a code of, of kind of binary digitality and, the way in which simulation is structurally situated in terms of this binarity and this uh, and 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 the logic of the code. I mean, one of the examples I gave and that actually he gives is this notion that we inherit from Saussure, which is that like a sign doesn't have any meaning in and of itself. It's always in opposition to other signs and it's different from other signs. And before I give you the floor back jack i was thinking have you guys read contact the the novel not just seen the movie no you know sagan's contact the proof quote unquote of god is because of course sagan you know kind of struggled with this all of his life as a as a scientist this question of of atheism and towards the end of his life he's writing contact and one of the ways that kind of god signs his or her its name is millions of digits out in pi the sort of random irrational number begins to give a kind of code that makes this perfect circle. I wish my dad were here. He explained it better, but, <laughs> but that's basically God's like wink that he signs his name in, you know, millions or billions of digits out in pi. Of course you can't really represent that well in a, in a cinematic mode, but 
and they did it. I think they do a good job translating it. Context, one of my favorite movies. That's kind of Sagan's answer that if there were a God and he, she, it were to sign the, you know, the name, simulate the name, it would be in this highly rationalistic way, but, but in the irrational number, in the most famous irrational number, right, that, that we know of, like an artist. Yeah. I think if I was to attempt to try and pull like an early Sartre out of this, you could look at God as being the first simulation and maybe I'm going off track a bit here, but you could see it as like the simulation is in a sense, something to, you know, help us get away from ourselves, which like God is at least historically used as this catch all thing, which, you know, I was even thinking about this earlier, like the idea of something is, as omnipresent, but we talk about God as like a fixed entity a lot, right. like as, as if he or they or whatever is a person, but then this person is also everywhere. It's right. everything. And it's so strange. But anyways, as far as like God existing as a simulation of sorts or, or something that we manifest or simulate to, again, I guess in, in some way, remove ourselves from our own you know, freedom again, going, yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's good though. That's perfect. That's exactly sort of what it's getting at. It's, I mean, I'm being very Hegelian here when it's, you have to create God to like monkey has to create God to create. That's Mm -hmm. a necessary step to build this system, the system of language or signs or something like that. I don't know exactly. I'm just kind of fumbling around in the dark with this, but I don't know. I thought it was an interesting question to pose relative to Nietzsche and Baudrillard and simulation and you can see this too. I mean, the simulation thing. I don't know if anyone saw today, but the Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook, <laughs> oh my goodness, virtual yes. shit that's going on. Like, right. haven't we already been down this road with Second Life? <laughs> but anyways, that's a right, true, right. I mean, it just goes to simulation more so. That's the reason why I brought it up. But anyways, if anyone has thoughts, well, I, I would just say it's it's interesting, right? The monkey or man creates God so that he can be made in God's image. But I think for Baudrillard, it's kind of through the looking glass. You have to, it's the next stage when there is no mirror to guarantee a reflection of God and, and his image, right? So man and God both kind of give way to this plane beyond simulation and or beyond resemblance and dissimulation. Think about too, just random. I thought about iconoclast, right? The whole etymology of iconoclast. And we talked about this a bit relative to the bonfire of the vanities mm, mm, mm. as well, where this sort of image, like it's, there's a c- certain perception of the image as being dangerous and deceitful relative to, I don't know what you would say, like medieval Christianity or status quo, like, re- yeah. Renaissance Christianity or something. If I may, Taylor, you were talking about you know, signs and and through Baudrillard and all that stuff. I I have to wonder, this always feels like a constant game that's happening in philosophy, which is like, what are things just, Mm, mm. you know, flatly. But um, I do wonder, you know, what Baudrillard's relationship is in in reference to uh, Derrida. Because when when you start talking about signs and they exist as, you know, a thing is always being... It always exists in reference to other things. Right. And and I think there's a bit of like Derrida's contology in there as well. And that that's something that's ever present in my mind. It seems that in a certain sense, like Derrida and Baudrillard would probably share at least some 
sort of foundational philosophical grounds insofar as they yes. both have early engagements with Sassur. Right. Like their work yeah. isn't necessarily possible <laughs> without the the divergent reading that they the the, the two sort of divergent readings of Sassur that they have. So in a sense, I think that that's just like a, a good academic like uh, recognition that I think one ought to make when reading both of these, both of these folks. But yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder whether when we talk about simulation, how much time we have to spend with Plato's statesmen and sophists too, in order to get like oh, yeah. a good idea mm-hmm. of what the notion of like, the image, the image idol, the copy, the simulacra mean, right. and then move forward. I, I sort of hate always doing this. Like, well, well you need to read philosoph- like philosophy, like chronologically. But I wonder right. Right. how helpful it would be to understand how, if we can start with like God made man in his own image, mm-hmm. but then of course we have to lose that resemblance. Right? right. And whether it be, we lose it through sin or through sharing the notion of man, right? And of course, what's the the line in logical sense? It's like sharing is always at best secondhand for mm-hmm. Plato. <laughs> or, or is that participating in or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah. So like the I, question of who, who, who's, which claimant is. Yeah. yeah. It's always, it's the, always the idea is first, right? It participates of itself. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. So like, I think, I think maybe if we, if we could, if we could start there, we could probably, uh, and that's part of the reason why I find reading Bojara to be really difficult is because in a certain sense you have to be held accountable for the entire canon in, in a way that, that I don't think for, for Derrida's of, of grammatology beyond Sassur and some of Rousseau, you could probably work your way through that text, but uh, symbolic exchange and death is 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 a doozy. See, it's it's interesting because I feel it's so intuitive. Maybe really, it's just because I just have been steeped in this for so long. Like I've been a Baudrillard guy for quite a while. You're built and different. It, it seems, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I read Antietapus, and it's I find that extremely difficult. And when I read Baudrillard, it's this makes a lot of sense. I can see right. this clearly. I can see the connections of simulation i don't know why that is necessarily i think that the that stylistically it, 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 he makes sense and i think that when and i'm I, not smart like i said like will jokes about being the <laughs> will jokes about being the worst co-host on acid horizon well i'm i'm definitely the worst co-host on a, on my own podcast <laughs> I, 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 I do not agree with that um but but no i i mean it's interesting you say that you understand it intuitively i think that maybe what will and i are saying is that we need to tap into our intuition more when we read him. Yeah. I do, and I, I, I think I try to hold him down like more logically or consistently. And I don't think he wants to. Right. He's not a I, systematic sorry, thinker the way that Guattari is. And maybe that's what you're in. I mean, it sounds like right, right, that right. seems to be the running thread because I remember you kind of giving an ardent defense of, um, of Guattari relative to like the Sokol shit, right? Like the fashionable yeah. nonsense. Right. And this being a thing is you, say like you know Guattari systematically defines its terms before he uses them it's all there in the text whereas Baudrillard seems to be he's less rigorous with that element but I don't know I just feel like at the same time like you I can see simulation everywhere Mm -hmm. I can see Lacan and Baudrillard operating on Twitter like their theory (laughs) is there like it's so much there right yeah simulation it's exchange of signs the symbolic exchange of signs not only the tweets themselves, but retweets, likes. There's a yeah. known, it has its own economy to it as well that is certainly libidinal, right? Because 
you can see that operating in terms of you know the predominant predominant logic of Twitter is the controversial take, the hot take, yeah. something that's going to frustrate you and draw out the emotion in your audience or whatever. And like that being the underguarding logic of it, I mean, it's sort of a microcosm, maybe a fract- fractal ontology of capitalism <laughs> itself and this marketized system where it's all about tr- networks of trust mm-hmm. and so forth operating and prestige, et cetera. This all is in line with things that Taylor and I have been discussing relative to Mouse's The Gift and you know, as a exercise in digging into the Baudrillard. Something that's become interesting to me in regards to Twitter is that Twitter is so gratuitously self-referential. Uh, um, that too, it's yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> like it's just such a strange space because I, I talk to people who like aren't on Twitter and they just don't get it. Right. Yes. Exactly. And I'm like, I was the same way until like a couple years ago. And then it just clicked. It's so bizarre. But there's like, I'll there's see a history, something. there's a mythology, there's a grammar, there's a syntax, there's very, all of those things mm-hmm. that one has to learn to be in the, to yes. be online or whatever. Yeah. And everything is like playing the best jokes that are happening, the best like comedy or whatever. It's always playing off of what someone else yes. knows already. Exactly. So you have to know this joke or this layer right. or several layers to even exactly. find yeah. this funny. And like for me, that's my favorite form of like comedy lately. It's just like, oh, this is so niche that like no one is going to understand exactly. it except for yes. like me and like 10 people. Right. So it's like, <laughs> that's so the, the beauty of it though. Alienating. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of the beauty of it, though, too, in a sense, because you can connect. That's the strength of it is being able to connect with others, other niche interests. Mm -hmm. So it's powerful in that sense. Yeah. And I I guess in a certain sense, too, that Twitter also not to be like morose about it, but a lot of the humor on Twitter smacks to me of the same kind of industry humor that you get. Right. Where it's like, oh, unless you work in this one particular sector of the aerospace industry. You won't get that he's yes. making a joke about the exactly you know this or that convert power converter or something. And it's like hilarious <laughs> to like a group of 54 people. And to me, that sort of humor is awesome, but it also has just this this element of necessary non-participation. Like it's it's funny precisely because other people don't understand it. Yes, exactly. And that's why philosophical humor in a sense can needs to be both like fundamentally not philosophical and also not funny. <laughs> like, like <laughs> if it isn't both of those things, it isn't philosophical humor. So it's just this game of projecting participation by showing that one possesses a particular niche knowledge that has like no value in itself, right? right. To know that yeah. what this user said two weeks ago, like copy pasta sort of works that way too. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Although eventually it becomes its own thing, right? In the context yes. of its, its a, a simulacra. It, yeah, <laughs> of course. Rather. It starts to not mean anything, but I, I always love to, to see sort of the, how a lot of these jokes could exist in like internal industry papers. They could probably <laughs> be put on, we could probably start like a, a a philosophy Twitter magazine and have an entire yeah. section of just Indus- like the industry trades, right? Yeah. <laughs> like what kind what kinds of memes to invest in, right? Yes, now? exactly. Libidity. Yeah, what's what's trending? What's trending? Bye yeah. bye bye. To go to Will's point though, real quick, just to make a joke actually here is that I've posted something about you don't want to encounter me at the jargoning table that I think <laughs> goes to that same idea of like, yeah, it's all about this sort of self-referential speech and like 
networks of prestige. I understand this reference to be able to, I have enough surface level understanding of this thing that I can like flatten out, a, a, you know, yeah, a like philosopher's like, whole project into there is nothing <laughs> outside the text. Yeah. All right. With the uh, Tony Soprano pointing at you like angrily. Are you inside of a book? <laughs> but like um, I told somebody the other day, it's a face is a text, right? If you're thinking in terms of faciality or something like that, a face is a text. So really, I know that that's kind of the a reduction of Derrida's project is there's nothing outside the text, but in a certain sense, he's right. There's nothing outside the symbolic representation of the real or some shit like that, which goes back to the whole question of simulation and God, et cetera. If I'm not mistaken, and, and maybe someone who's better read on Derrida could elaborate better, but I, I think the example of like there's nothing outside of the text is just a mode of um, of formulating what he's what his deconstructive method is in regards to text. So he's really trying to strip unnecessary layers away from the text and get to very intricate readings of it, even down to like the etymology of different words and how they function in relation right. to each other. So I think that's what that quote is, but it's famously just thrown around yeah, yeah, where no exactly. one understands it. I just to share, have any of you seen The Good Place? I have not. I, I, I know this people, to watch people it, but... recommend it specifically because Gordon Marino is uh, the philosophical consultation guy. So like... Mm -hmm. Anytime there's like a philosophical a problem or like a book, it's because Gordon Marino recommended it. So you'll see like Todd May's book on death. Well, yeah, he like, was. Yeah, he was actually Todd May was a consultant on the show as well. Oh, yes, that. that was a great episode. Did have so, you had yeah, him like, on as a guest? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was just gonna say um, it's kind of a spoiler, but I, I might be able to avoid the large spoiler. But it's it's a fun show. But there's a meme of this one moment in the show where one of the main characters says making a, a grand big observation this is the bad place but someone changed the changed the the text at the bottom to say the other is the bad place and i was just like oh that's, that's my favorite that's so funny it's a no exit reference guys it's deep <laughs> <laughs> we, we always anyway. seem to come back to that that closing line right i mean yeah because i was telling you until we had kind of talked about it i'd never even looked at the french you know, in the way it's translated, usually as hell as other people. And he doesn't directly say that in French, right? He just mm -hmm. says hell as, hell as others. And it's not capitalized or anything. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it does seem to get us back into this question of simulation or, you know, to serve signs are only, they only take on their meaning, you know, through their, through, through opposition and di difference. And the question of no mirrors, right, in hell, was, you know, and, and no exit. Yep. Yeah. I was just going to get into that because I do think that in some in some sense relates. I mean, I hadn't thought about it until just earlier today. There's there's a moment in No Exit. Well, I'll take a quick tangent. Sometimes No Exit actually gets translated to in camera, which is a very odd. I don't know where that comes from, but it again kind of calls back to the no mirrors. The gaze because, or the hyperreal gaze, I think, would be maybe yeah. a good the gaze of the phallic, the phallic that's gaze that's or something, some kind of panopticon phallus image mm. in my head i don't know fundamentally what the story is is of course it's a dramatic interpretation of of sartre's ideas on the look and the relation of the self and the other and and where it comes through especially is estelle who's kind of the vain character starts freaking out because there's no mirrors in this area and she can't see herself and she's afraid that she's unattractive or ugly so she starts talking to inez 
who she knows is like enamored with her and will just compliment her and say anything she wants to hear. And they're having this back and forth where Inez is trying to relax her and calm her down. But Estelle fundamentally believes she can't know herself without being able to see herself. And she knows that her perception of herself through the other is not what she would have of herself, I guess, or is maybe dishonest or fragmented. You know, Sartre talks about the line, hell is other people or others or, or however you might put it. And he, he has different interpretations of this line at different points in his career, but he usually avoids the very obvious misanthropic hot topic. I hate everyone. Right, <laughs> um, right, right, right. But one of the interesting uh, interpretations he gives of it is, is he talks about, you know, this area that you, you know, none of them are able to escape from is in some sense, we, as we exist beyond ourselves or beyond being. So when I die and I'm not here to, you know, change people's perception of me, there's this almost cemented, but quickly dissipating memory that everyone has of me. And it's never the quote unquote real me. It's always an idea of me as I was. Yeah. No, it mm -hmm. go ahead. please. It goes back to Pierre who isn't there. Right. (laughs) The the problem might be that that, that he is so absolutely there in this one particular way. That whole section on negation comes back to mean some. It ends up meaning something entirely different when we look at like the keyhole. You know, one of the great one of the reasons why I have a real problem with a lot of the 60s French folks treatment of Sartre is that there there was eventually this assumption by. It's, it's interesting because in the Anglo world, a lot of Marxists like to say, oh, well, Sartre was a great pr- playwright. He was a great novelist. He wasn't a great philosopher. But then when you look at the 60s French books, they're like, yeah, he wasn't really a great novelist. He wasn't really a great <laughs> playwright, but he was a great philosopher. And that was Deleuze's position. Deleuze's position was that work on Husserl, work on phenomenology, yeah. totally interesting, you know, not not my cup of tea, but, you know, it, it was my... Like in the early 60s, it was uh, he was my teacher, I think was yeah. is the name of yes. the, the piece. Yeah. So but my position is you can't separate the two. In American mm-hmm. academia, there's this hesitancy to inject analyses of no exit, condemned of Altona and, mm-hmm. and pieces like that into philosophical analysis of Sartre. But, you know, in a certain sense, what I see at the end of there's this stabbing right at that that culminates as like the the climax of of no exit and then it ends up in like the corporeal is reduced because it it the person's relationship to their corporeality exists only insofar as it can be conceived of and apprehended in that moment right in mm-hmm. the section on the body in being a nothingness the status of the patient's leg changes once the doctor apprehends the leg. The leg exists to the patient in a completely new way, completely different way. So like you can't separate Sartre's plays, I think in a certain sense from his philosophy, because in a certain way, what I see in No Exit is just the hyper extension of that moment of shame where you're mm. peeping, you're looking through the keyhole and it doesn't even matter what's on the other side. What matters is actually what's behind you. And right. it's that possibility <laughs> yeah. of someone on, in the stairwell about to come up and perceive you. I just think that um, Sartre is a good playwright. It is precisely because he is a good philosopher. And if he's a good philosopher, it's reflected in the way in which his plays are able to actually like metabolize these ideas and present them in a way that is 
dense and engaging. The fact that you can even have these conversations at the level of just like not the superficial, right? The fact that we can do it more than just the cosmological existential dread of like, I don't know, a Rick and Morty, right? (laughs) (laughs) Is, is, it speaks to the relationship between his philosophy and his, and his more artistic work. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't want to go on too long here, but there, there is something that's been on my mind a lot lately, which is, um, of course, I'm very slowly working through Hegel's phenomenology of spirit. And I've gotten into the sections I've talked with Taylor and a couple other people about the sense certainty stuff, which has been like really fascinating for me. And I think in some sense, I don't want to misappropriate a, a tool from Hegel's toolkit or whatever, but um, it feels very ever-present in Sartre just as a as a political figure, as a writer. One of the things that's so bizarre is it's there in nausea, right? It's it's the the, the Rockenton who's who's trying to write this book about a person, but who can't figure out who this person is or why he cares about this person or what this person's meaning is. He just can't do it. And it's really just this sit-in for Sartre (laughs) trying to write a story and trying to find out why any of it matters. But what's fascinating is that for me, this works for Sartre. He's this character that I can never quite get a grip on and can never reduce. And anytime I think I've got him, it just squirms out of my fucking hands. (laughs) And, And that's why I get a bit frustrated when when people put, you know, Sartre of all thinkers into a box of sorts, because I think what they're actually missing is a large part of the project for Sartre was to exist within these contradictions and was to bring them to light in, in all sense that he possibly could. Again, even when you go into his politics, there were always times where Sartre was just the odd man out and would go from one area to another based on what was happening. And so that's just something I've been thinking a lot about. So I think that influence from Hegel is very present in his work. So it's, it's cool to hear you kind of speak to that. Yes. You mentioned Hegel, something that's been problematic for me that I've been thinking about a lot lately um, is Durkheim and Durkheim's notion of, of deviance and how this relates to the other and this is another huge question here would be, is it necessary to have the other for this recognition? Is it necessary to have God or whatever? Is that a requirement for society to have an other to say good monkey, bad monkey, or you know, even getting at sort of that, that level of analysis? I mean, isn't that sort of been the process of, of philosophical work since, since Plato is to like, allow for some, the establishing of some like binary opposition, well, not even a binary opposition necessarily, right? Because like we know that, that that takes a different status than like even Hegelian scholarship contemporarily, but this ability to like distinguish between the good and everything else. <laughs> yeah. And I guess when it comes to like the question of, of the other, I guess you, you would have to ask Hegel and then for God, <laughs> I guess, Feuerbach. Like, right. the status of God and philosophy is extraordinarily fascinating and my question now would be when we talk about condemned to be perceived or condemned to exist in relation to the other now i want to see if there's is there an engagement in being in nothingness with spinoza that's extensive i honestly don't remember not that i can recall at least not directly (laughs) actually no i believe sartre named a taylor question right (laughs) yeah yeah like (laughs) this is for the this is for the the people who like just just have these texts 
on hand. And that's part of the reason why are we even capable of producing figures like Sartre, Deleuze, these individuals who can have extensive just abilities to reference in passing the most minute instrumental elements of figures like Hegel, Sartre. Because like you can say a lot about Deleuze's critique of Hegel and Kant and difference of repetition. You can't say that he's not thorough in his engagement. True. I should clarify to you as well that since probably not that many people will be as familiar with Durkheim, but Durkheim was a sociologist also in France. The thing for me that was always so interesting about Durkheim is this functionalist approach to deviance. Deviance providing a function, a function of determining what what is the good, what is the bad. And so that's a necessary problem that society has to account for, and it has to calculate that in some fashion. And so that will obviously always be relative. We'll always have to redefine what is deviant in any society. So at that point, it's I guess it gets very Hegelian as far as there is no ultimate arrival at universal spirit. It's always a moving to, but never quite reaching, what, which would be the Lacanian take as well, right? Because you can never quite reach your desire for full and ultimate you know, universal knowledge or spirit or whatever. I'm very certain I've read Spinoza in Sartre. I'm, I'm trying to remember if it's in Being a Nothingness or not. But I was also going to say, you know, that talk of the good and the other. Will, you brought up St. Junet in there a little bit earlier. And, you know, there's this passage very early into the text where he says, evil exists only in the other. And I've just been fucking rattling that in my brain for the last few days. It's this very interesting idea. Of course, for him, Junet is contrary to this because Genet is is this evil entity. So he can't even acknowledge himself. But generally speaking, what's, what Sartre is arguing is that it's almost incomprehensible to perceive ourselves as, as fully in evil in totality. Yeah. So this evil is always something in the other or others, and it's not something that can exist within ourselves. So yeah, it just is interesting. But go ahead, please. Yeah. And that was, that was my question about if there is like, that's precisely why I would want to see if there was an engagement with Spinoza in, in being in nothingness, but I'll, I'd have to check I, or an extensive one. Cause I'm sure he's, he's in there, right? The, yeah. the way in which, yeah, the way in which Sartre treats Hegel necessitates a, a response to, to Spinoza. But I'm wondering too, cause like Coop wants to talk about in a certain sense, this notion of the functionalism that exists in parts of parts of Durkheim's work pertaining to like structural functionalism, which of course, like I've not dealt with since I was taking sociology <laughs> classes, right. you know, five, six years ago, whatever. But um, I think that that question of methodologies of determination seem to still be one of the, the more sociologically rich areas for, I think, historical research, right? And Durkheim's thing, if I, if I recall, is different ways through which the dichotomy of the sacred and profane manifest and the functions that, that they serve. So maybe you can speak to a little bit why, why you think uh, a new engagement with, with Durkheim will sort of yield a new result for you as you work through things, symbolic exchange. Relative to identifying, at least in large part for the most of my life as sort of, the, of an anarchist. And so trying to coming to this problem of there being a certain functionalist a function to things that are on their surface negative, but that serve a greater purpose for at a universal level. 
So this has been brought on a lot by our investigations into uh, Mouse's The Gift and Potlatch and what function Potlatch serves, what function warfare serves. Because, you know, in a certain sense, warfare, your knee-jerk reaction is war. Okay, war bad for the monkey because the monkey dies. But at the same time, if you're looking at it from a functional perspective, what does war do is war allows the tribe to eliminate itself of young warriors that would perhaps cause a lot of issues, right? If they're unmarried warriors, right, they might try to overthrow the chief or et cetera. So it's a way to, I've been characterizing it as a way to keep the libidinal band from overheating and and causing chaos and everything falling apart on itself. I think it's very counterintuitive that these negative things, deviance and sort of projecting this otherness onto others, right? Is we kind of agree at a certain level that it's bad, but you can see the function at the level of the great ephemeral skin or the body without organs in a sense, or like if you want to use that imagery to sort of describe the the sort of functional body of humanity as a collective, as a as an organism that has many different many different things within its own unity, right? Yeah, I mean, like in terms of just your example, I mean, Deleuze and Guattari basically say it's it's when the war machine takes war as, as its object that war becomes bad, quote unquote. They even talk about in the primitive territorial machine that the skirmishes, the little battles being fought between tribes isn't necessarily about warfare in general. It's about warding off the accumulation that leads necessarily to a state, to a form of state, which then appropriates the war machine. And that's where we lead to things like war becoming the object. What we find obviously is that the state has to appropriate a war machine, right? It doesn't necessarily have one of its own. Um, Just, I would say in a certain way, at least with my terrible reading of a thousand plateaus like i will not stand by anything i say in a year about this work but the necessary ossification of the state that has to exist preliminarily to its manifestation (laughs) seems to me to be already at odds with the kind of work that we see in calastre's theory of violence or his understanding of the function of war as it pertains to a society that is diametrically opposed to the state and its relation to to power, the fun- the function that war has in relation to power. But to me, I still I still wonder if we change the way we read Durkheim on on deviance, if we could unlock maybe new layers of analysis in some of some of um, Calastre's engagements with Levi Strauss. And then some of Foucault's engagements with Durkheim in, I mean, they're passing in the lectures, but, you know, to be name checked in a, in a lecture is, I think, pretty important. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that maybe there should be sort of a treatment of, of uh, the potluck and, um, and war that looks at sort of the functional treatment of, of deviance. I should maybe even to, in our discussions, Taylor and I's discussions on this, I've said that potlatch can be seen as this sort of virtualization of conflict of the war, right? Because especially in the example of destroying goods to, you know, to kind of keep things in balance, to keep accumulation from getting too out of control, there's a virtualization there. There's also the virtualization, virtualization, even like if the, the gifts or whatever are not destroyed, 
It is a competition. It is this battle over prestige, right? So it virtualizes that previous sort of level of, of warfare. And it takes that and it says, okay, here's a different type of competition where there's not loss of life, right? Because that can be maybe even a more stable form of, of the libidinal band or the society. We keep kind of coming back to it that this this quest for prestige and as you said, the potlatch, the sacrifice, the quote unquote useless expenditure is this virtual means of continuing warfare by by other means. By other means, right, yeah. I'm trying to remember since we were briefly just saying a thousand plateaus, trying to remember if it's Durkheim that they oppose to Gabriel Tard, when, when they talk about Gabriel Tard's micro sociology, if you will, and they oppose it to Durkheim's overarching kind of macro view and how sort of the molecular is presupposed by the great determinations that Durkheim is focusing on. I'm trying to remember if, if it is Durkheim that they say, since we're talking about name checks. Do you see an element of Durkheim's desire to systematize even like social phenomena such as like suicide right some of some of Durkheim at least from what I remember from undergrad yeah a lot of it a lot of his work on suicide pertained to a desire to like systematize forms of social control right so uh, trying to get an understanding of what the function of the churches were yeah yeah and like (laughs) in a sense too you get that in in later Foucault right where the church now when we look at the function of the sacrament or even more important penance, this really, really important investment in the body and the pleasures in an attempt to accrue a particular kind of knowledge, which then can feed back into to systems of power and necessarily alter the way in which power then invests into the processes of acquisition of knowledge. Do you think that, I think there were like four or five forms of suicide that Durkheim explicitly articulates in the way in which they were each dealt with at the level of the sociological. Do you think that that's another way of attempting to, to understand how these uh, different systems of like intervention, whether they be, let's say, the church or you know, new so- forms of social organization to prevent you know, man from being alone in his room <laughs> and so on, could that also help us with understanding how like the war machine becomes appropriated? I like where you're going, but I I don't know honestly. I don't know either. That's why I like ask these formless questions. <laughs> right, I mean, uh, no, I, I simply haven't read enough. I just need enough, to read right? more. Yeah, I think it's an open question. I mean, I don't think there's any unless we were going to start a, a thousand plateaus study group or dive into <laughs> the nomadology plateau, which is obviously very important. I will say. Not to answer your question, but to go back and answer <laughs> mine. Yeah, it, they bring up they bring up Durkheim and um, in it's it's Plateau Nine on micropolitics. So if anybody was on the edge of their seat wondering, <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah, there. What's the context of of um, of his name check? It's basically that the Durkheimians were taking a kind of polemic against what Gabriel Tard was trying to do in and what like I, I called it micro sociology but and this is where they say he's he's doing kind of like psychology or interpsychology and not sociology and what Deleuze and Guattari are going through in terms of the polemics that the Durkheim, well, they say the Durkheimians were channeling against Tarda is similar to what 
they discuss in Plateau 3 with Cuvier's polemics against saint right, in terms of embryogenesis and, and things like that, in terms of the question of the evolution of forms. So I think that, that for Deleuze and Guattari, the, the, the success or the interest that Tard has is this, uh, this focus on, you know, minute kind of molecular shifts and inventions in, say, like bureaucratic policies or even like linguistic inventions on a, on a small scale. And, that the, and then they go into how Tarda is looking at is looking at flows and that uh, this is where they say belief and desire are the two aspects of every assemblage, um, which is interesting because in a thousand plateaus, they, they actually criticize belief. So they're either their emphasis has, has shifted or maybe the, the perspective has shifted. I'm not sure if there's necessarily a, a, a change of heart going on, but. Yeah, and to we, bring it back to, to Sartre, isn't the whole yeah. passage on ideology and Antiedipus an analysis of groups like fusion in CDR too. They start to break down this notion of belief and ideology in mm-hmm. relation to desire. So when you say that there, there are beliefs, uh, there are beliefs and desires, I'm wondering like, do they give one a primordial status over the other? Is it, let's say in relation to like, does it go back to one stems from the other or one manifests out of the other in a sort of Dionysian Apollonian sense? You know what I mean? <laughs> The status of belief in Deleuze and Guattari seems to to be one that that is largely being a target of their analysis of the political. But honestly, like that could just be me not understanding what well, they, they're up to. They say a flow is always of belief and of desires, or desire beliefs and desires are the basis of every society because they are flows and as such are quote unquote quantifiable. They are veritable social quantities with a capital Q, whereas sensations are qualitative and representations are simple resultants. I mean, I think that that's, that's like Deleuze's thing when he's always trying to look at the sub-representative domain, obviously Guattari too, uh, in, in some sense. And that's why he kind of is saying that Durkheim's looking at these these big movements and determinations already presupposes the kind of uh, stratification of the sub-representative like, realm where, where all the fun shit's going on. In Anti-Oedipus, their polemic is that the unconscious doesn't give a shit about belief. It doesn't, there's whole beliefs, right? Um, Makes sense, yeah. Just precisely in the same sense that it doesn't recognize contradictions or oppositions, doesn't recognize death, right? I mean, like, this is the same with Deleuze reading um, Nietzsche's Death of God, that, you know, it's the fact that it takes so long to travel to the unconscious realm and, and hit, right? This is why the madman says, I've come too early, you know, announcing the death of God. Kind of took a little excursus there. Sorry. That's why I, I was kind of thinking, you know, because we just read that part, Coop, where he, I think in the the last seminar, seminar, the last little episode we did, we may not have discussed it, but I remember clearly that they say something like the unconscious doesn't, doesn't care about belief. That's, it doesn't like, that's not its domain. Belief is, is on the realm of the conscious or pre-conscious. Um, this yeah. is where they first start to introduce this dialectic of pre-conscious, conscious interest and, um, you know, unconscious investments. Anyway, that, that kind of sidetracked us. I, I apologize. <laughs> I want to mention too, maybe this will be a somewhat interesting thing is since we're on Durkheim and 
little bit of sociology. I, and this kind of gets to this question of the other and how that sort of works too. And like maybe even goes back to how the name of God is the first simulation is there's a term looking glass self that sociologist Charles mm-hmm. Horton Cooley came out with right around the turn of the century, effectively saying that, yeah, it's sort of like we have to sort of use this almost like a sonar approach in within mm. the socius to define who we are. And so we're always sending out these sort of sonar buoys to determine off of the other. We're bouncing off of the reflection of the other, who we are through that experience. And so I think maybe that's the undergirding logic of this idea of God being the first simulation, because what am, what am I, God helps me sort of name of God sort of helps create the system where I can define who I am. Like regimes of representation are helpful. <laughs> like, yeah, like that. Oops. Like it is, it is good to have these things, at least in the immediate sense. It's, it's a question of what their status is at the level of the philosophical. For example, Deleuze is going to have too much of a problem with the way in which we treat the stop sign. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it is interesting to see that if we understand this is also not a what I like about that the question and that note of yours is that it actually taps into a like what a lot of early philosophical work on God speaks to, which is it's this in it's this communicative initiation. And like I guess you get this in a sense with some of Feuerbach too, but I think Adam from Acid Horizon would would do a better job discussing this. So yeah, yeah I think I think that it it does come down to the fact that like I like some representation <laughs> um, because yeah. it allows me to, I don't know, not get hit by a car tomorrow. This is why when Leotard is discussing the cooling down of the band, that I mean, that representativity is, is part and parcel of that movement. And it's only with that cooling down that we start to make a differentiate between this and that and et cetera. So it's, it's kind of this question where, of course, Deleuze is interested in difference of repetition, the infinitesimal, all these things to, to discuss the sub-representativity of images of thought. And at the same time, images of thought are, it's not like we can do without them, right? right. It's that whole thing whereby we, we always say this, Cooper, it's like, well, you know, you have to participate in language and use language, use representation to, to communicate yeah. and talk and, and yeah, to critique and, and even talk about the band. So you participate in society, you know, and, and like, I'm very intelligent. It's that kind of thing. I mean, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely right that, you know, it's not, I think I tried to say this a long time ago where the lose isn't saying like, stop using representations. You're bad. It's just, <laughs> as you said, it's the status of representation in the philosophical that still forms a bedrock for, for philosophical images of thought. And it's that, that notion that I always try to think about how Deleuze comes up with the notion of vice diction, because he says, you know, opposition or contradiction isn't the, the most extreme form of difference. And I think that that's part of what we see in the at least in the trilogy that Coop and I have been focusing on, like anti-Oedipus, you know, libidinal economy, symbolic exchange and death. But it's not just those three works. But you see this in, in, in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, post-68, especially with this, whatever it was loosely called, post-structuralist. You see some of these questions coming back to the fore. You see, but, it, but you can even already see it in some of the debates or some of the opposition, the agonism between Plato and like the sophists, Right. You know, one tongue-in-cheek way of 
saying it is like post-structuralism is the revenge of the, the sophists, right? We talked about how Plato sort of, right, he was against the image too because it destroyed the form, or am I misremembering? Yeah, I mean, was, it's... Like, it's a it, sort of almost a critique of representation there as well, but almost on the opposite. And kind of like the, kind the, of, the mirror image, if you will. Right, I mean, kind of, it's, it's, it's what, you know, Will was discussing it earlier in terms of the participation that the idea is the one and only thing that participates on the first rank, right? It's, it's, it, you know, we could talk about it in terms of the allegory of the cave or things like that, that images or art is already like an imitation of, you know, nature, which is itself an imitation of right. the ideas, right? Yeah. So <laughs> that's why it has to be excluded. I don't know. Somebody else jump in. This is part of the reason why like I, maybe it's just like the fact that I'm, just not a good philosophy student but in a certain sense i sometimes get frustrated with readings of plato where like oh it's all just like a distant metaphysics don't worry too much about the anxieties of socrates and his discussions with adamantus no theater is evil like <laughs> it is evil and it, and it is part of what destroys callipolis and mm. it, it it must be very carefully matriculated down to these perfect guardians and mm. we have to be responsible for the way in which we understand the function of of the artistic and then what that brings me to is um the explicit note in logic of sense where Deleuze explicitly talks about the moment of pop art right where mm. where it's pushed to like to where it changes and art becomes the, the copy of the copy becomes simulacrum and like yeah, yeah. like for me there is a real a deeper battle going on in the fight to overturn Platonism. This is actually something that, that does then refer back to a politics too. I think these questions are not, maybe I was being a little flippant when I said, oh, it only refers to the philosophical. Well, of course the philosophical is already steeped in these, in these greater, in these greater battles. So I don't, Taylor's right. I probably shouldn't just uh, leave it in this sort of uh, realm. So yeah, maybe just a small correction on my part of what I, what I was trying to say. I didn't know I was calling you out for anything. So <laughs> I was piggybacking, but uh, no, 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 you know. no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what relevance does any of this have with? I feel because I don't understand this concept from Guattari, but I feel like I don't know if if it's just the an intuitive thing, but I feel like where does a signification does that have any per relative purchase here? I mean, I think that that's you know related to some of the stuff we were just discussing about yeah. Deleuze doesn't want us to even if we can't operate there necessarily when we speak to one another, right. Insofar mm -hmm. as we are castrated speaking beings, as you brought up <laughs> earlier, yeah. but he doesn't want us to forget the sub representative side, right. He doesn't want that to be strangled by a certain image of thought. I mean, it's, it's kind of like what we said, you know, the over the overturning of Platonism may not even have been necessary for thousand, two thousand years, whether due to culture or science or whatever, mm -hmm. precisely because those kind of questions weren't being the questions surrounding them, problems surrounding them weren't being had not yet been formulated at least 
in a way that gave them currency. It's the same way as, as Euclidean um, geometry right. works perfectly fine, or Newton Newton's way of looking at, at the universe is perfectly fine until certain problems yeah. are able to crystallize, right? I mean, the, right. the, the problem of the, of the parallel lines. So, so when Guattari is talking about the A signifying in the A grammatical, on the level of flows, on the level of intensities, on the level, as I said, where kind of a lot of the fun stuff happens is beneath, behind the back of, of signifiers. On the other hand, you know, when Deleuze and Guattari talk about you go to work, your boss gives you a funny look, you know, you're, you look at your watch and the hands are in, a, in, in the shape of a face or you, you step in a pile of shit, it doesn't matter what it means, it all signifies, that's still going to happen. But you know, I think for like Guattari, his way of looking at his like, for example, point signs, right? When he's thinking about signifying chains, he's talking about how, you know, these signs have a polyvalence that gets binarized, whether due to capitalistic efficiency or just our images of thought, our, our, our standard ways of thinking, that the signifying chains themselves are made up of these sub-representative of these A-signifying elements that that we could talk about in terms of, you know, detachments of code and things like that, right? I mean, it's it's kind of, I, one way I try to think about it is we talk about like computer code as computer languages, right? But they don't necessarily signify in the way that we think about them, even if they can submit to a kind of binarity logic of the way that yeah. Khan discusses the symbolic to a certain extent, right? They... If you call that signifying executing a program with chains of symbols and these other things, then you're kind of maybe to my mind stretching the the term further than one should. Whether you're wrong or not, it, it does come down to setting definitions, right, and things <laughs> like this. And I think that so I think that for like Watari when he's discussing because you 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 talked about the faces of text, you know, like for him when he says like. Now that I've seen your face, all these faciality traits, despite myself, are now a part of my universe, right? Your, your ways of speaking, your manners of speech, your your memes, your shit posts, blah, blah, blah. That's all a part of my like unconscious universe. And it's not necessarily like signifying for me. It literally, you know, becomes a part of my becoming. So I think that part of that is agrammatical, part of that's asignifying, um, whether or not even Guattari like roughly distinguishes them. But there is that, one of my favorite quotes, obviously from Twilight Idols is where Nietzsche says like, we obviously we can't get rid of the belief in God until we've get, gotten rid of our faith in grammar. Yes. Oh, that was a great quote. I love that. Yeah. Twilight of the Idols seems to be like, not, not to completely like drive this car off the cliff to like a totally <laughs> different topic, but Twilight of the Let's Idol seems to be like the touchstone for like a good intro to Nietzsche. And I wonder why that is like where, hmm. where in his academic career was he at the point of Twilight of the Idols? Because the way in which Nietzsche has been taught to me, and I've taken now a graduate and undergraduate course on Nietzsche, it's always birth of tragedy first, uh, genealogy yeah. second. And then read Zarathustra, which sort of brings all of these these things together. And texts like on timely meditations, which is so important to to French Nietzscheanism, particularly the uses and abuses of of the historical. I think I botched that title, but that's a, the uses and abuses of yeah. for life. Yeah. And then um, 
you know, Schopenhauer's educator is very important to yeah, Schopenhauer's educator and like Eke Homo is sort of the the thing. A couple comments on Eke Homo is what allows for Deleuze to make the enemy of Hegel that Nietzsche becomes in that text is literally just on the grounds mm-hmm. of a couple comments that he makes in Eke Homo about birth of tragedy. It always seems like I don't actually have an extensive engagement with Twilight of the Idols. I don't think I even ever finished it. So I wonder. Where was Nietzsche? At, does anyone have like any biographical understanding of why, why it seems like Twilight of the Idols specifically is a, just a good crash course? My opinion is that, you know, that last year he's writing, he's writing because he's starting to accelerate right before his collapse and then his right. near Catatonia or whatever. But he's that last year he's writing four books, one of which is uh, Twilight of the Idols. Um, there's Nietzsche contra Wagner. There's Eke Homo. There's one other that I'm, I'll remember it's when it doesn't matter. But um, I think that that's one of the reasons, right, where he is putting together some of his most mature reflections and you you get a sense of his style. Like, obviously, it starts with um, sometimes it's called Maximus and Arrows and it's translated variously. It starts with the aphoristic style and it, and it really does keep to that Nietzschean style of crisp, really um, condensed forms, right, with the, with the lettering, usually just paragraphs. Sometimes you see it broken up a, a little bit more just for readability. But I think that that, one of the maxims that he has is sort of maximum semiotic power, max, maximum signification, minimum, or I guess the word is like maximum, yeah, but like maximum signification, minimum form, or min, in the minimum yeah. Amount. Space. Right? Uh, he has that. That that's that's like boom. That's an aphorism. Yeah, and uh, Mark Fisher in um, I think it might have been at the the conference for, for the release of Fang Numina where he spoke about Terminator versus Avatar. I think was the title mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. of the of the talk, and it was uh, he quotes Kudwo uh, Ashun who says that Nietzsche is text at sample velocity. Mm. You know, like the the process of, of sampling where you take these extraordinarily heavy hitting elements that constitute the entire that would, will end up constituting like the entire track. Right. Mm-hmm. These like these four bars from a song in 1968 that will then have like a new intensity and new function where it's like that sort of thing where it hits really, really hard and really, really quickly with Nietzsche. And in a certain sense, it's it's up to you. And this is probably part of the reason why he has that admonition in the introduction to genealogy of morals, where he says, like, if you really don't sit with this text and allow it to at least affect you, you're not actually reading it. Like you can you can speed through this thing, you can constitute some something of a reading. But even though Nietzsche's engagements are always more like you know guerrilla style attacks on the history of philosophy. He descends from the hill and then quickly retreats to something else, right? Like the lightning and the flash is, I think, is a is a great example. It's this quick engagement on basically the entirety of the Kantian doctrine. Then he just recedes back. And he's back in doing his his anthropological work or something like that. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there is this maximum effect with it's just banger after banger after banger. Frankly, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. We're taking a look at it next, actually. That's why it's on the top of our minds. Yeah. We're probably going to um, record on that, I don't know, Monday maybe or something? That'd be great. And one of the reasons why I suggested it to Cooper was because of the really condensed, speaking of the, 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 the condensation, uh, the really condensed, how the true world finally became a, a fable 
think that's how sometimes it's translated. Let me just see. Yeah, something like that. Because it, when I've been reading about simulation with Cooper, I keep thinking about Nietzsche's, how the true world finally became a fable, you know, this sort of putting in brackets of, of the true and the real. It just seems like a fundamental off-ramp to, to discussing simulation. Do we have any maybe final thoughts? Do, do you guys want to start wrapping it up? I feel like we've, we've yeah. done a, a ton. Jack, do you want to have, you know, ha- have something to say? Or does anybody want to just say anything from, from what we've done today? This would be totally unrelated, but um, I, I recently read through uh, The Metamorphosis again. I don't know if anyone would be interested in riffing off that just a little bit, but I've been thinking about it a lot, you know, because I read it just the other day. The end of the text, just really, I was just really struck by it because it comes so abruptly. And I know this is a philosophical quote unquote or whatever, but I, it was just, I can't remember exactly what the end of the text is, but what he says, but he's talking about the parents' perspectives of yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the girl. And it just ends with her stretching in the sun. And that's like the end. And it's so abrupt. I just found it really interesting how it all kind of coalesces to essentially go back to where it began of this abuse of the child by the parents, because it's never explicitly detailed to the reader that, oh gosh, I don't even remember if the guy has a name, but the the guy who turns into a roach. (laughs) Or Samsa, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Samsa, that's right. That's how bad bad my memory is. But yeah, it's never explicitly detailed that he's abused or even really heavily mistreated as a person. But you kind of learn as, as the story evolves, oh, well, the dad was able to do some of these things the whole time. And it's essentially just, I don't know. I, my point with it all is that I was just very intrigued by this, this idea of the, the self-perpetuating cycle that children endure, but often aren't even aware of and that they endure right. into adulthood. So anyway, like some Freud, some Freud shit there. I mean, yeah, it, absolutely. It, 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 Am I remembering correctly that didn't Richard Dawkins step in some shit talking trash about the, the metamorphosis? Am I remembering correctly? Yeah. Do you guys? Yeah. Okay. Hold on, I'll, I'll pull it up. Uh, you're pulling was, the tweet. What is it? Is it an allegory? If it's an allegory, it's a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. He says, if like Animal Farm, it's an allegory. Well, then it's a uh, bad one. <laughs> uh, dude, Animal Farm bangs, dude. Guattari bangs. Would li- it's funny listed. because in a certain sense, like, one could criticize Dawkins at the same level of his desire for like textual utility that you start to see in works like Metamorphosis, right? Mm. Where there's always been this sort of, I would say like institutionally, but obvious read, like obvious reading, institutionally repressed, but obvious reading of Metamorphosis that in its most simple form, it really is a discussion about the utility of that, of Gregor, right? Mm. And what, it comes to mean once his mode of being is is one that is not immediately correspondent to the needs of those parents. So in a certain sense, Dawkins is, I think, at the fundamental level, allergic to that reading. He cannot yes. allow it to be yeah. one. Yes. So like he has to reject it. So it's not, if it's an allegory, an allegory of what? It's not something that can enter his <laughs> like yeah. his his world. Even his understanding of of meme is one yeah. that I think has to also always come with a particular understanding of utility. So yeah, that's what I, I mean, that, that'll be my closing. Talk about <laughs> a dogmatic, talk about a dogmatic image of thought 
right? Exactly. If, if ever there were one. But Jack, yeah, you and- should know that uh, Guattari <laughs> would say that Kafka, I forget who else he includes in this pantheon, Bruce, but Beckett, like Proust, Joyce. Beckett, Joyce, etc., are they're the great philosophers. Mm. They're mm. the great schizoanalysts. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. So. I was really struck by it because I, I a lot of the stuff I just hadn't even read in high school like most people. So I'm I'm just coming into it in my late 20s. But I remember I was just because I, I had decent understanding of what the book was about. But I was just like immediately his first thought upon becoming a fucking bug of a kind. It's just like, oh, man, how am I going to get to work like this? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and it's like it's so funny because. I don't know how I would relate to that book in my youth. And I know for a fact I would not see the, I know the bureaucratic critiques that Kafka makes in a lot of his works is even present there, or even the, you know, capitalist critique that he's making, at least in some sense there. It's just this, this idea, kind of like you said, Cooper, about not fitting within a utility, not fitting within society as a utility, as someone right. to produce, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. essentially becomes, there's the metaphor, duh, you know, a roach, fucking worthless. You just step yep. on it. It's gone. You don't need that person because they're not contributing. And wow. <laughs> that actually and that's otherization, <laughs> right? The otherization of Gregor in a sense yes. through this new, uh, I don't know, is it a signifiers? I don't know. Is it a faciality well, machine or something like that? I don't know. It's a big, be- it's a becoming animal, but it's like the, the worst, the worst yeah. animal <laughs> I can imagine. Right. You know, uh, although cockroaches will outlive us all. So uh, no, sense, that's true. Right? Like, that's there true. Is- <laughs> and no, but isn't that, isn't that also like a great choice too? right? That which dwells most effectively in the Anthropocene in the industrial society, the cockroach is the city bug. So I think it's also a great choice because the cockroach is the thing that is reviled, particularly in like these industrial hub, because it signifies a sort of filth. I mean, I don't want to get play games of uh, it's in other like, right? oh, these bugs are like filthy, but they're also everywhere, right? Yeah, they constitute the most common part of the insect world of the city, but they're also like deeply reviled. So, as you mentioned with like the otherizing, there's a scene. Within the story where his sister is playing the violin for the family who had come by to watch this performance. And she's playing really beautifully. So he he wants to he wants to witness it, but he also wants to almost thank her for this act and and for all the acts that she had done in service of him. But he can't help knowing what he is in relation to, you know, these people who don't know. Yeah. what he is right so he's in the hallway it's almost like a reverse i don't know if it'd be a reverse look situation but oh, he's in the hallway you know watching and trying to not be seen and it's just this very strange sequence of events do we want to wrap up here i think we can i think we can if either one of you want to plug any of your projects please please feel free. And then we'll, we'll go ahead and shut it down for the day. Thanks for having me on. It's always, it's always fun to chat. Uh, I think this is the first time Coop, you and I have been on the same pod since yeah, I think the, the discussion of Proust and science, right? Yeah. Talk about apprenticeship and, and Deliz's treatment of the image of thought. So yeah, it's always good to, it's always good to chat. I'm loving what you guys are doing. Excited to, to listen to the, the stuff on the gift tonight. Oh, nice. That's a good one. I, I feel like we've been putting, I've been able to contribute <laughs> on some of these Baudrillard ones and, and so forth. So that always feels nice. 
Nice. But glad yeah, to have uh, you as well. Appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun. This is another reminder that I have to read some <laughs> more Baudrillard. Thanks you all for having me. Listen to Acid Horizon. It's a great podcast. That's my plug. I, I don't have agree. anything else. So. <laughs> agree. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and follow follow at Emo Foucault and at Snowdrift Moon on Twitter. This will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off. Y'all. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is this is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.